and welcome to Relevant History. I'm Dan Toller. Before we start today's episode, I do want to just give a quick shout-out to a couple of other podcasters, uh, the reason being that uh, these individuals gave me the opportunity to come and interview on their shows. So maybe this is something that well, my listeners would be interested in as well. I appeared on the most recent episode of the Common Sense Report with Manuel Salazar. That is a political talk show out of the West Coast. So uh, a little bit of a mix of history and politics there, and I understand politics can be divisive, so if that's not your thing, please stay here, enjoy my show, don't get mad at me, but if you are interested in that sort of thing, and well, I would hope that at least some of you are, you can find the Common Sense Report at anchor.fm slash Report. Alternatively, I will also have a link to that interview in the podcast description and in the interviews section on my website, dantollerpodcast.com. That's dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast.com. The other show I appeared on was a bit outside of my wheelhouse, but I'm glad I did it because I had a lot of fun. Uh, this was a show called The Salad Tossers, and as you might expect from the title, it's a bit of an irreverent show. Uh, think of these hosts as three young Howard Stern types, and you won't be far off the mark. Needless to say, if you listen to my show with your kids around, you should probably listen to the salad tossers without your kids around. Uh, like uh, with Manuel's show, I will have links to that episode in the show description and on my website, or you can just visit the Salad Tossers at anchor.fm forward slash the salad tosser. Singular. I'm not sure why that's singular, but it is the salad tosser, singular, in their URL. That said, let's move forward with today's episode. We've spent the last handful of episodes globe-trotting a little bit, traveling around in space and time through Serbia and Ethiopia and even to Austria in World War II. But returning to the main, broad narrative of this season, the story of nationalism, we come back to the Mediterranean world. We last left the Mediterranean world at the end of Episode 8, The Rise and Fall of the Third Caliphate. And at that time, the great Islamic empire, the Abbasid Caliphate, had collapsed into basically a local Iraqi empire. And that Abbasid Caliphate was succeeded by a number of smaller states, uh, the most notable of which being the Fatimid dynasty in Egypt. That was a Shia Muslim uh, dynasty that claimed to follow the descendants of Muhammad's daughter, Fatima. And another one of these successor states came out of Central Asia. If you recall, the Abbasids 
in their conquests had conquered all the way deep, deep into Central Asia, as far as modern-day China. And now, much of the Muslim world, including most of Persia, has been conquered in turn by an Islamicized group of Central Asians called the Seljuk Turks. These Turks are a nomadic people who come from the Central Asian steppes in the area of modern-day Turkmenistan, which is where the country Turkmenistan gets its name, right? Land of the Turkmen. And the Turks are a linguistic group, really, an ethno-linguistic group. And the term Seljuk refers to the dynasty. Right? So later on in our story, we'll be dealing uh, in the future with the Ottoman Turks. Right? Well, they're the same general group of people, but ruled by a different dynasty. During the 1000s, a series of brilliant Seljuk Turk leaders had conquered all the way from Central Asia as far as Anatolia. There they came to a halt temporarily. They bumped into the Byzantine Empire and Christian Armenia. And they also ran into the Fatimid dynasty in Egypt. Remember the Fatimid dynasty? Well, they're Shia Muslims and... The Seljuk Turks are Sunni Muslims, and just as we see in the world in modern times, back in the 1000s, Shia Muslims and Sunni Muslims often came into conflict. And as it turns out, uh, the Fatimids and the Byzantines at this time had actually made an alliance, a defensive alliance to protect themselves from this rapidly expanding Seljuk Turk empire. But in 1064, the Turkish leader Alp Arslan figured out how to untangle that knot. Right? Rather than attack either the Byzantines or the Egyptians, he attacks the very small country of Armenia, and he easily conquers the capital, the city of Ani. And in the process, uh, he kills a great many people, and his men destroy all the surrounding farmland to make grazing land for horses. This is something you see steppe invaders do throughout history. Earlier on, the Huns had done this. Shortly in the future, the Mongols will do this. They need lots of grazing land to support the huge number of horses that their society requires. By attacking Armenia, right, the Turkish leader Alp Arslan has not sort of triggered this defensive pact between the Byzantines and the Fatimids, but at the same time, he has indirectly struck at the Byzantines. See, Armenian trade and Armenian resources are essential to Byzantine interests. For one thing, the Byzantines buy a lot of crops from this area around the city of Ani that Arslan has just devastated. And the Byzantine emperor, who would have called himself the Roman emperor, by the way, 
the Western uh, Europeans would have called him the Greek emperor. Now we call him the Byzantine emperor, whatever you want to call him. Uh, emperor Romanus IV has to respond to this indirect attack, and he rallies an army. And from the years 1068 to 1071, there are a series of battles between Romanus and Arslan. Uh, none of them are really decisive. There is one point at which Arslan is completely surrounded and Romanus comes within a hair of capturing him, but then Arslan escapes and manages to get back to Persia and raise another army. And none of these battles, though, is really decisive. In the year 1071, we begin what seems like it's just going to be another indecisive uh, campaigning season. That year, Romanus believes that Arslan is in Persia, raising an army there. And with Persia being a little bit far away from Anatolia, he decides that he's going to retake the city of Manzikert uh, in eastern Anatolia, which Arslan had recently conquered from the Byzantines. Uh, Romanus is going to go take it back. This is easily accomplished. Uh, he raises an army of around forty to 50,000 men. Uh, contemporary Turkish sources... Uh, say that the army consists of 200,000 men. That's definitely an exaggeration. Uh, Forty to 50,000 is more realistic. And uh, the city falls without a fight. Uh, and then to establish a base for an invasion of Persia, uh, Romanus spreads his army out. He sends a foraging party of 12,000 men north uh, towards Georgia, another area which has been sacked by the Turks, but they're supposed to round up whatever supplies they can. And these seem like they're all sound moves, except for one thing. See, Arslan is not in Persia. He is in Syria, and, you know, instead of being off to the east of Romanus, he is down to the southwest. Uh, he's preparing for an invasion of Fatimid Egypt. But when he gets word that Romanus has retaken the city of Manzikert and is planning to invade Persia, he changes his mind. He takes his 14,000-man army northeast up to attack Romanus's army and drive them away from the Persian frontier. And along the way, he collects more troops until his army also numbers about 40,000. So both armies are about equal. Now, the fortress of Manzikert is located about 30 miles from the city of Kilat. And it's actually the city of Kilat which Romulus plans to use as his main base of operations. Uh, and he needs to go and uh, take or from his point of view, liberate Kilat. And he expects that this is going to be relatively easy. As far as he knows, there's you know, basically no Turkish opposition there. And again, this is territory that until like a year ago was part of the Byzantine Empire. So should be a fairly easy task. But what Romanus doesn't know is that Arslan 
has already gotten to Killot with his army and is marching towards Manzikert. The two armies are about to run into each other. And on August 25th, 1071, that is exactly what happens. Some of Romanus's scouts spot some of Arslan's scouts, and uh, Romanus immediately realizes that he's running into a giant army here, which he wasn't expecting. So the first thing he does is he sends messengers out to recall his foraging party, right? Remember those guys who he had set off to the north to go gather supplies? Well, he's telling them, hey, get back here now. There's about to be a battle. But instead... Those 12,000 men retreat away from the battlefield. And this is because of internal Byzantine politics. See, unbeknownst to Romanus, several of his generals are in league with his wife to have him removed from the throne. And if he simply dies in battle, well, so much the better for them. At this point, Arslan sends out an emissary to offer peace terms. Uh, Romanus refuses, and he sends a counteroffer, basically saying, you know, we'll have peace if you promise never to attack the Byzantine Empire ever again. And Arslan rejects that, and the two sides end up meeting in battle the following day. Now, the Turkish army consists mostly of horse archers. This is fairly standard for these Central Asian steppe peoples. You see it again and again throughout history, and their strategy is pretty simple. They use hit-and-run tactics to wear you down. If you come after them, they'll just sort of pull back, shooting at you the whole way. Uh, they're very difficult to fight, but... The Byzantines had dealt with these people before, remember, right? The Byzantines, being the successors to the Roman Empire, have experience dating back to the B.C. era of history, and Romanus has studied his military history. Right? He has studied the Strategicon, right? the Byzantine military manual that tells you how to fight these horse archers. You make a slow, steady advance with heavy infantry. Right, why heavy infantry? Well, heavy armor, heavy shields. You're going to be able to block most of those arrows. And the idea is to pin the horse archer opponent up against a terrain feature like a mountain or a lake where they can't maneuver. And then all of a sudden the cavalry archers, without being able to get away from the infantry, will be at a significant disadvantage. Well, unfortunately for Romanus, the area where the Battle of Manzikert takes place is a relatively wide open area. There's not any terrain feature nearby to block the Turkish archers against. So, his uh, infantry just sort of advance slowly all day, slowly being whittled away, not taking too many casualties at this time. Morale is still good, but as nightfall is approaching, Romanus has pushed the Turks all the way back past their own camp 
They're still retreating. They're still picking off his men. And he's come no closer to sort of being able to pin them down anywhere. Well, he can't keep fighting all night. That's not practical in ancient warfare when you don't have, like, flashlights and things like that. So he decides that he is going to withdraw. And as Romanus's men are withdrawing in good order to their camp, Arslan's Turks do what horse archers do, and they counterattack. And in response to this, Romanus orders his men to quickly turn around and form a line, but only the first rank listens. The rest of the men, who are under the command of some of these generals who are colluding with Romanus's wife, well, they all keep retreating back to the camp. With his now vastly outnumbered single line of men, Romanus is overwhelmed. Uh, most of his men are killed, and he himself is captured. That is very common in this era. Right? The common soldiers, of course, are killed, but when you get someone into your hands, like, say, an emperor who's really important, well, they're far more useful to you alive. You might be able to ransom them off, for instance, which is what Arslan does. He forces Romanus to pay a ransom, and it's a hefty sum. It's going to be paid over the course of 50 years, according to their agreement. And upon agreeing to pay this ransom, Arslan is released to return to Constantinople. But in his absence, while he was a prisoner of Arslan and the Turks, one of his rivals had indeed gained power and taken the imperial throne. Now, Romanus is able to rally an army, but he is defeated in the field, and within a year of the Battle of Manzikert, he is blinded by his enemies, and the wounds are so traumatic that he dies shortly thereafter in prison. Between the Battle of Manzikert and the subsequent power struggle, Byzantium is crippled. The Seljuk Turks now control almost all of Anatolia. That is the Asian part of modern-day Turkey. And that area of Anatolia is where the bulk of Byzantine people lived. Right? They have some people in the Balkans. They have some people in Greece, obviously, is a well-populated area, and the great city of Constantinople itself, but in terms of peasant stock for the armies, Anatolia was where it was at. And with the loss of that territory, the Byzantine Empire must now rely on mercenary armies for her defense. And many of these are Normans. The Normans themselves are an interesting people. They are originally Vikings uh, who have come down and carved out some territory for themselves in France. Uh, this is where we are at in our story in 1071. is just five years after the Norman William the Conqueror famously conquered England. And the Normans are conquering all around Italy, and they've even clashed with the Byzantines and the Balkans. 
So they're very useful people to have if you need mercenaries, but when you rely on mercenaries, you expose your nation to a number of weaknesses. Number one, you better make sure you're able to pay those guys. Because if you can't, you're liable to be overthrown by a rival who can pay them. You can draw some interesting parallels here with the later days of the Western Roman Empire. The emperors of the later Eastern Roman Empire are usually generals and are frequently overthrown. And by the year 1081, ten years after the Battle of Manzikert, there is a new Byzantine emperor, Alexios I Komnenos. Alexios is a savvy general who takes over in a coup, and he knows that he needs more mercenaries if he wants to reclaim his empire. He's got the money to hire them, but he needs the bodies. And for this, he looks to the West. See, back in the year 1054, the heads of the Eastern and Western Christian churches, the Pope in Rome and the Patriarch in Constantinople, had excommunicated each other. And this event, called the Great Schism, gave us the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches that we still have today in modern times. Now, to modern people, this is a long-standing divide, it's a complicated issue, and if you wanted to unravel or undo the split between the two churches, you would have a lot of ground to cover. But at this time, in the late 1000s, the split was brand new, right? It was 27 years old. This was a divide that could be bridged. So, to get help, Alexios tries to reconcile with the Pope. Now, he is fortunate to be dealing with a Pope who is very much willing to listen. See, this pope is Pope Urban II. Urban used to be a man named Odo. Before taking his papal name, he was a French bishop, and at the time he becomes pope, Urban is already dealing with an anti-pope, a rival pope set up by the Holy Roman Emperor for various political reasons we won't get into here, but point being, he's already got enough trouble uh, keeping the church together. He is more than happy to deal with this new Byzantine emperor and try to reconcile with the Eastern Church. But beyond that, Urban has a broader vision. He wants to unify the Christian world as a whole. When we talked about the Islamic caliphates several episodes ago. We talked about the Islamic idea of a caliphate. A fusion of a secular and religious state under a caliph who is both the supreme secular and supreme religious ruler. 
Urban is pushing for a similar idea called Christendom. Now, the idea of Christendom, a unified Christian world, is not new. Depending on how you define the term, it's as old as Constantine. But what Urban is going to do is use the specter of Islamic aggression to forge an alliance of various European powers that had been fighting with each other for years. And in March of the year 1095, Urban gets a perfect reason to act. At this time, he is holding a council at the city of Piacenza in northern Italy. This is a relatively mundane church council, just sort of going over uh, various matters of church business with some bishops, and uh, also dealing with this issue of the antipope. But some Byzantine ambassadors arrive, some messengers sent by Emperor Alexios, and they're asking for help. Well, this is exactly what Urban needs. In November of 1095, he calls another church council, this time at the city of Clermont in France. Now, much of this council is spent in a closed session with about 300 bishops. But on November 27th, the penultimate day of the Council of Clermont, Urban gives an open speech in the public square to bishops, nobles, and even some commoners. And in this speech, he does a few different things. Number one... He calls on, first, the French people, but more broadly, the people of Christendom, to resume the peace of God and the truce of God. These are two agreements that uh, nobles had made with each other and with the church to refrain from violence against priests and nuns, and to limit warfare to certain days and times. This was important. At the time, in Europe, warfare was nearly constant. It was happening at a low level between you know, one local lord and another local lord, more often than not. But it, these guys would fight over anything. And while... Nobles were generally safe, right? unless you were suddenly killed in the heat of battle. Uh, you were worth way more as a hostage than dead, but this kind of warfare was devastating for peasants. And the peace of God and the truce of God, using sort of social and religious pressure to at least limit the amount of warfare that happens, uh, well... Not only is it possibly the world's first peace movement, but it's something that Urban calls on the people to resume. And he then flips the script a little bit. He knows that Europe is dealing with this feudal system. The leaders are knights and lords and 
the entire ruling caste of the society is military. You need, if you're going to have peace in Europe, to turn those guys somewhere else and channel that energy elsewhere. So he calls on the Knights of Europe to liberate Anatolia from the Seljuk Turks. He's basically taking local dynastic violence in Europe and exporting it. And finally, to you know, convince people to do all this, he depicts the mission to liberate Anatolia as a holy pilgrimage. The idea of pilgrimage, of a religious journey, is present in most faiths at most times. Right? People still go on pilgrimages to holy sites today, but in Christianity, in the Middle Ages, the idea of pilgrimage had taken on great importance. It was not unusual for a pope or a bishop to promise people that if you make a pilgrimage to the shrine of a particular saint and say a particular prayer or give a donation or what have you, all your sins will be forgiven. And the greatest pilgrimage that a Christian in the Middle Ages could make was to go to Jerusalem. So, in urban speech, he calls on the Crusaders first to atone for their sins by liberating their fellow Christians, and then to seize Jerusalem in the name of Christendom. And again, thereby anything bad they may have done in the past will be forgiven. Now, Pope Urban II's speech at Clermont is one of the most important and famous speeches in all of history. But like any ancient speech, or really any speech given before the time of radio or video, what we really have is just a written record from people who were there. And there are four sources for Urban's speech in particular. There is Fulcher of Chartres. He was present at the council, and he wrote a history of the First Crusade called the Gesta Francorum Jerusalem Expungiatum. The next source is a man named Robert the Monk, who may have been present at the council, and uh, that was written in his Historia Hierosolimitana, and then there are two additional sources who were not at the council, but who heard about it from people who were there. Uh, one is Baldrick, uh, the archbishop of a city called Dahl. And then there is Guibert de Nogent in his book, De Gesta per Francos. In addition to that, we have a letter from Pope Urban to the Crusaders, actually several letters to different groups of Crusaders, uh, but these are very dry. They simply recount that he gave a speech and give a little bit more specific instructions. And there's also a book called the Gesta Francorum, which translates to Deeds of the Franks, uh, which we'll be using as a source later. It's an anonymous first-hand source from an anonymous follower of Bohemund, uh, 
who is a major crusading leader we will meet later. But the guest of Francorum only gives a quick summary of Urban's speech, so we're really dealing with these four sources, uh, only two of whom were present. But if you enjoy my show, then you know I am a sucker for a good speech. And the fact that we have four different sources, all of which I can cite, and none of which entirely agree with each other, this gives me the opportunity to have a little fun and do a bit of a historical remix. The main difference between the versions of the story is that Fulcher of Chartres's version focuses on the crimes of the Franks, on the things they were doing in their society and their constant warfare with each other uh, before Urban's speech, uh, while Robert the Monks and Baldrick's focus on Urban's praise of the Franks, and Guibert's version is a little different altogether. These represent potentially different types of appeals to Frankish nationalism. Well, what follows is the Dan Toller remix, if you will, of Pope Urban's speech at Clermont, taken from the four sources. Quote, O race of Franks, race from across the mountains, race chosen and beloved by God, as shines forth in very many of your works, set apart from all nations by the situation of your country, as well as by your Catholic faith and the honor of the Holy Church. To you our discourse is addressed, and for you our exhortation is intended. We wish you to know what a grievous cause has led us to your country, what peril threatening you and all the faithful has brought us. I hoped to find you as faithful and as zealous in the service of God as I had supposed you to be, for according to the gospel you are the salt of the earth. But if you fall short in your duty, how, it may be asked, can it be salted? Oh, how great the need of salting! It is indeed necessary for you to correct the salt of wisdom this foolish people, which is so devoted to the pleasures of this world, lest the Lord, when he may wish to speak to them, find them putrefied by their sins, unsalted and stinking. See that the tithes that belong to God are faithfully paid from all the produce of the land. Let them not be sold or withheld. If anyone seizes a bishop, let him be treated as an outlaw. If anyone seizes or robs monks or clergymen or nuns or their servants or pilgrims or merchants, let him be anathema. Let robbers and incendiaries and all their accomplices be expelled from the church and anathematized. You have seen for a long time the great disorder in the world caused by these crimes. It is so bad in some of your provinces, I am told, and you are so weak in the administration of justice, that one can hardly go along the road by day or night without being attacked by robbers, and whether at home or abroad one is in danger of being despoiled either by force or fraud. Therefore it is necessary to reenact the truce, as it is commonly called, which was proclaimed a long time ago by our Holy Fathers. I exhort and demand that you each try hard to have the truce kept in your diocese, and if anyone shall be led by his cupidity or arrogance to break this truce, by the authority of God and with the sanction of this council he shall be anathematized. 
Although, O sons of God, you have promised more firmly than ever to keep the peace among yourselves and to preserve the rights of the church, there remains still an important work for you to do. Freshly quickened by the divine correction, you must apply the strength of your righteousness to another matter which concerns you as well as God. From the confines of Jerusalem and the city of Constantinople, a horrible tale has gone forth and very frequently has been brought to our ears. Namely, that a race from the kingdom of the Persians, an accursed race, a race utterly alienated from God, a generation, forsooth, which has not directed its heart and has not entrusted its spirit to God, has invaded the lands of those Christians and has depopulated them by the sword, pillage, and fire. It has led away a part of the captives into its own country, and a part it has destroyed by cruel tortures. It has either entirely destroyed the churches of God or appropriated them for the rites of its own religion. They destroy the altars after having defiled them with their uncleanness. They circumcise the Christians, and the blood of the circumcision they either spread upon the altars or pour into the vases of the baptismal font. When they wish to torture people by a base death, they perforate their navels, and dragging forth the extremity of the intestines, bind it to a stake. Then with flogging they lead the victim around, until the viscera having gushed forth, the victim falls prostrate upon the ground. Others they bind to a post and pierce with arrows. Others they compel to extend their necks, and then, attacking them with naked swords, attempt to cut through the neck with a single blow. What shall I say of the abominable rape of the women? To speak of it is worse than to be silent. The kingdom of the Greeks is now dismembered by them and deprived of territory so vast in extent that it cannot be traversed in a march of two months. On whom, therefore, is the labor of avenging these wrongs and of recovering this territory incumbent, if not upon you? You upon whom, above all other nations, God has conferred remarkable glory in arms, great courage, bodily activity, and strength to humble the hairy scalp of those who resist you. You, girt about with the badge of knighthood, are arrogant with great pride. You rage against your brothers and cut each other in pieces. This is not the soldiery of Christ, which rends asunder the sheepfold of the Redeemer. The Holy Church has reserved a soldiery for herself to help her people, but you debase her wickedly to her hurt. Let us confess the truth, whose heralds we ought to be. Truly, you are not holding to the way which leads to life. You, the oppressors of children, plunderers of widows, you, guilty of homicide, of sacrilege, robbers of another's rights, you who await the pay of thieves for the shedding of Christian blood, as vultures smell fetid corpses, so do you sense battles from afar and rush to them eagerly. Verily, this is the worst way, for it is utterly removed from God. If, forsooth, you wish to be mindful of your souls, either lay down the girdle of such knighthood, or advance boldly as knights of Christ, and rush as quickly as you can to the defense of the Eastern Church. For she it is from whom the joys of your whole salvation have come forth, 
who poured into your mouths the milk of divine wisdom, who set before you the holy teachings of the Gospels. We say this, brethren, that you may restrain your murderous hands from the destruction of your brothers, and in behalf of your relatives and the faith, oppose yourselves to the Gentiles. Let the deeds of your ancestors move you, and incite your minds to manly achievements. The glory and greatness of King Charles the Great and of his son Louis, and of your other kings, who have destroyed the kingdoms of the pagans, and have extended in these lands the territory of the Holy Church. Let the holy sepulchre of the Lord our Savior, which is possessed by unclean nations, especially incite you, and the holy places which are now treated with ignominy, and irreverently polluted with their filthiness. O most valiant soldiers and descendants of invincible ancestors, be not degenerate, but recall the valor of your progenitors. But if you are hindered by love of children, parents, and wives, remember what the Lord says in the Gospel. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Every one that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. Let none of your possessions detain you, no solicitude for your family affairs, since this land which you inhabit, shut in on all sides by the seas and surrounded by the mountain peaks, is too narrow for your large population." nor does it abound in wealth, and it furnishes scarcely food enough for its cultivators. Hence it is that you murder one another, that you wage war, and that frequently you perish by mutual wounds. Let therefore hatred depart from among you, let your quarrels end, let wars cease, and let all dissensions and controversies slumber. Enter upon the road to the holy sepulchre. Rest that land from the wicked race and subject it to yourselves. That land which, as the scripture says, floweth with milk and honey, was given by God into the possession of the children of Israel. Jerusalem is the navel of the world. The land is fruitful above all others, like another paradise of delights. This the Redeemer of the human race has made illustrious by his advent, has beautified by his residence, has consecrated by his suffering, has redeemed by his death, and is glorified by his burial. This royal city, therefore, situated at the center of the world, is now held captive by his enemies, and is in subjugation to those who do not know God to the worship of the heathens. She seeks, therefore, and desires to be liberated, and does not cease to implore you to come to her aid. From you especially she asks succor, because, as we have already said, God has conferred upon you above all nations great glory and arms. Accordingly, undertake this journey for the remission of your sins, with the assurance of the imperishable glory of the kingdom of heaven. All who die by the way, whether by land or by sea, or in battle against the pagans, shall have immediate remission of sins. This I grant them through the power of God with which I am invested." What a disgrace, if such a despised and base race, which worships demons, should conquer a people which has the faith of omnipotent God, and is made glorious with the name of Christ. 
With what reproaches will the Lord overwhelm us if you do not aid those who, with us, profess the Christian religion? Let those who have been accustomed unjustly to wage private warfare against the faithful now go against the infidels and end with victory this war which should have been begun long ago. Let those who for a long time have been robbers now become knights. Let those who have been fighting against their brothers and relatives now fight in a proper way against the barbarians. Let those who have been serving as mercenaries for small pay now obtain the eternal reward. Let those who have been wearing themselves out in both body and soul now work for a double honor. Behold, on this side will be the sorrowful and poor, on that the rich, on that side the enemies of the Lord, on this his friends. Let those who go not put off the journey, but rent their lands and collect money for their expenses. And as soon as winter is over and spring comes, let them eagerly set out on the way with God as their guide. Unquote. And at this point, Robert the Monk's account continues. He says, quote, When Pope Urban had said these and very many similar things in his urbane discourse, he so influenced to one purpose the desires of all who were present that they cried out, It is the will of God! It is the will of God! When the venerable Roman pontiff heard that, with eyes uplifted to heaven, he gave thanks to God and, with his hand commanding silence, said, Most beloved brethren, today is manifest in you what the Lord says in the gospel. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. For unless the Lord God had been present in your midst, all of you would not have uttered the same cry. For although the cry issued from numerous mouths, yet the origin of the cry was one. Therefore I say to you that God, who implanted this in your breasts, has drawn it forth from you. Let this be your war cry in combat, because this word is given to you by God. When an armed attack is made upon the enemy, let this one cry be raised by all the soldiers of God. It is the will of God. It is the will of God. Unquote. And this cry, the Latin words Deus Volt, often translated simply as God wills it, would indeed become the war cry of the Crusaders. By the end of the day of Pope Urban's speech, every scrap of red cloth in Clermont was gone, used to make impromptu red crosses for Crusader banners. And after the conference ends the next day, Urban goes on a tour of Europe promoting the crusade and writes letters to various leaders trying to get them on board. Bishops go back from the conference to their own diocese and they preach the crusade. And even everyday people who were present for the speech are struck with religious fervor and either go out preaching the crusade or join up themselves. Now, when Emperor Alexios Komnenos had sent his messengers to the Pope, 
what he was hoping for was help from, you know, a few thousand mercenaries. Just something to bolster his mercenary forces so he could prosecute a war at his discretion. Well, Urban had upped the ante, right? He was basically sending half the armies of Europe to go off on this crusade, not just to liberate Anatolia, but to go all the way down to Jerusalem. Well, what neither Alexios nor Urban expected was just how powerful Urban's call to action would be and how deeply it would resonate with the people. Because before the real armies of the crusade ever took to the field, a ragtag group of people prosecuted a crusade of their own. Uh, These people were led by a man named Peter the Hermit, and their crusade is appropriately called the People's Crusade. Now, Peter the Hermit is a monk who may or may not have been present at Clermont. Uh, If he wasn't there, he was certainly nearby and heard about Urban's speech within a couple days of it having been made. Peter, when he hears this news, is ecstatic because he has been literally preaching on street corners and ranting and raving, trying to get a crusade going for a few years now. He claims to have been a pilgrim to Jerusalem in the past. And he claims that along the way, he was uh, mistreated by the Turks. Now, modern historians question this claim. It appears that Peter the Hermit may in fact never have actually been to Jerusalem. uh, But nonetheless, his claim was somewhat directionally correct, but also misleading, Uh, pilgrims at this time, Christian pilgrims, were having trouble getting through to Jerusalem, but not because anybody was intentionally stopping them from going on pilgrimage. Uh, It was because the area around Jerusalem was right on the frontier between the warring Fatimid Caliphate and Seljuk Turks. Uh, This was not an easy area for anybody to get into, much less a bunch of unarmed Christian pilgrims. So, Peter the Hermit spends the winter of 1095 and 1096 traveling through France and England and Flanders. That's roughly the area of modern-day Belgium and the Netherlands. Uh, And as he's traveling through this area he collects a large number of followers. Uh, His army consists mostly of common people, uh, but there are also some low-ranking nobles among the leadership. Uh, These are either low-level lords or some knights who would not necessarily qualify for a leadership position in the actual crusade, but by going on this people's crusade, they have a chance to win a little bit more personal glory and recognition. Peter's army meets in the city of Cologne 
on April 12th of 1096. Now at this time, Peter himself wants to stay in town for a few days, do a little more preaching, wait for a few more Germans to join them before moving on and marching to Byzantium. But the French and uh, some of the Germans who had already come to Cologne and were ready, uh, they move on ahead without Peter. Uh, these troops end up being held up at the border of the Byzantine Empire. They're held up at Belgrade along the River Sava on the border between uh, what is then Hungary and uh, what is then the Byzantine Empire. And while waiting for permission to enter, uh, they're forced to pillage the countryside. They literally have no food, uh, and uh, several crusaders are arrested by uh, some local Hungarian lords for their crimes. Uh, eventually, the Byzantine garrison commander in Belgrade receives orders to, yes, let these guys through, uh, and the crusaders are admitted and given food for their journey to Constantinople. Meanwhile, on April 20th, Peter and the rest of his army leave Cologne. Now, this is a relatively large body of men, about 40,000 combatants, and at least that many non-combatants, including women and children. Uh, some crusaders uh, brought their entire families with them literally sold their houses and left everything behind to go do this. And to help feed these people, Peter is carrying some letters from prominent French Jews. And these Jews are asking their German brethren to help Peter. And Peter, you know, using a combination of these letters and some you know, implicit threats, he does have an army behind him, uh, coerces these German Jews in the Rhineland to give his soldiers food and funding. Now, why are they going to the Jews in particular for help? Well, at this time in medieval Europe, lending money at interest was considered a sin. It was not allowed for Christians to engage in the practice. Well, if you can't lend money for interest you can't really have a banking system. So the Christian states of medieval Europe got out of this with a loophole. Well, a Christian couldn't engage in money lending, but well, there was nothing in the Jewish faith that said you couldn't lend money. So the Jews of Europe became, in a large sense, the banking class. And... This sometimes worked out well for them because they could do very well financially, and other times it did not work out so well because they were a minority that was disproportionately wealthy, and uh, in cases like this, people could extort them. And if only extortion was the worst of what the Jews of the Rhineland would face, because... After Peter's group uh, takes most of their food and money on their way through, another group comes along behind, uh, more people's crusaders trying to catch up with Peter. 
and they were also planning on extorting the Jews of the Rhineland, but, you know, those people don't have much left. They've just given uh, most of their stuff to Peter and his men, so the combination of feeling cheated and not having money or food and already being on a mission to go kill non-Christians, this group of crusaders engages in a series of massacres. During this time in the Rhineland, rape and looting are the norm. In one town, all the Jews are forced into a river and uh, forcibly uh, given a mass baptism. Many, many horrific stories of murder and death, and uh, roughly a quarter of the Jewish population of the Rhineland was killed in this brief period referred to by historians as the Rhineland Massacre. Well, thankfully for the remaining Jews of the Rhineland, these people's crusaders would eventually move on. And Peter's army, and their families, and their followers, would form a human wave across Eastern Europe. And that wave would need to be fed and housed. This caused trouble for them along the way in various places, but eventually they would arrive in Constantinople. And Peter's arrival in Constantinople and the subsequent short war are recounted by a historian named Anna Komnene. And Anna is the daughter of Emperor Alexios, and she is our main Byzantine source for these events. She was a fierce supporter of her father, and in fact, a few years later, when Emperor Alexios dies, she will try to usurp the throne from her brother John. And when she fails and does not become the empress, John will have her locked in a convent where she will write her history of Alexios's reign. The Alexiad. And in the Alexiad, Anna Komnene writes that the Crusaders are preceded by waves of locusts that eat vineyards, but not grain. And this is what she says. She says, quote, This was really a presage as the diviners of the time interpreted it, and meant that this enormous Frankish army would, when it came, refrain from interference in Christian affairs, but fall very heavily upon the barbarian Ishmaelites, who were slaves to drunkenness, wine, and Dionysus. For this race is under the sway of Dionysus and Eros, rushes headlong into all kinds of sexual intercourse, and is not circumcised either in the flesh or in their passions. It is nothing but a slave, nay, triply enslaved, to the ills wrought by Aphrodite. For this reason they worship and adore Astarte and Ashtaroth too, and value above all the image of the moon and the golden figure of Hobar in their country. Now in these symbols Christianity was taken to be the corn, because of its wineless and very nutritive qualities. 
In this manner, the diviners interpreted the vines and the wheat. Unquote. When you read Anna's history, you will hear these sorts of references to the Greek gods regularly. It's a reminder that the Byzantine Empire, at least, retains a close connection to the classical world. They are Christian people, but they still use these ancient Greek gods as ways to explain things that happen in the world. And Anna calls Peter the Hermit uh, QQ Peter, which means Peter of the Cowl. And she says that he is received by the emperor upon his arrival. And uh, remember, the emperor was expecting, you know, like a few thousand mercenaries, certainly not tens of thousands of mostly peasants and all of their families. He was not expecting this kind of help. And he also knows that by this point, the real crusading armies are already on the way from Europe. And this is how Anna describes the rest of the People's Crusade. Quote, The emperor, knowing what Peter had suffered before from the Turks, advised him to wait for the arrival of the other counts. But Peter would not listen, for he trusted to the multitude of his followers, so crossed and pitched his camp near a small town called Helenopolis. After him followed the Normans, numbering ten thousand, who separated themselves from the rest of the army and devastated the country around Nicaea, and behaved most cruelly to all. For they dismembered some of the children, and fixed others on wooden spits and roasted them at the fire and on persons advanced in age they inflicted every kind of torture. But when the inhabitants of Nicaea became aware of these things, they threw open their gates and marched out upon them, and after a violent conflict had taken place, they had to dash back inside their citadel as the Normans fought so bravely. And thus the latter recovered all the booty and returned to Helenopolis. Then a dispute arose between them and the others who had not gone out with them, as is usual in such cases, for the minds of those who had stayed behind were aflame with envy, and thus caused a skirmish after which the headstrong Normans drew apart again, marched to Zergiordius, and took it by assault. Unquote. So, to clarify here, the People's Crusaders have fought in one battle and they're already divided into the Normans and everybody else. So far, they're not off to a good start, right? Peter the Hermit now does not even have control over his entire army. And Anna Komnene continues, quote, When the Sultan heard what had happened, he dispatched Elkanis against them with a the substantial force. He came and recaptured Zeragordus, and sacrificed some of the Normans to the sword, and took others captive. At the same time, he laid plans to catch those who had remained behind with QQ Peter. He placed ambushes in suitable spots, so that any coming from the camp in the direction of Nicaea would fall into them unexpectedly and be killed. Besides this, as he knew the Franks' love of money, 
he sent for two active-minded men and ordered them to go to QQ Peter's camp and proclaim there that the Normans had gained possession of Nicaea and were now dividing everything in it. When this report was circulated among Peter's followers, it upset them terribly. Directly, they heard the words partition and money, and they started in a disorderly crowd along the road to Nicaea. All but unmindful of their military experience and the discipline which is essential for those starting out to battle. For, as I remarked above, the Latin race is always very fond of money, but more especially when it is bent on raiding a country. It then loses its reason and gets beyond control. As they journeyed neither in ranks nor in squadrons, they fell afoul of the Turkish ambuscades near the river Dracon and perished miserably. And such a large number of Franks and Normans were the victims of the Ishmaelite sword that when they piled up the corpses of the slaughtered men which were lying on either side, they formed, I say, not a very large hill or mound or peak, but a high mountain, as it were, of very considerable depth and breadth. So great was the Pyramid of Bones, and later men of the same tribe as the slaughtered barbarians built a wall and used the bones of the dead to fill the interstices as if they were pebbles, and thus made the city their tomb in a way. This fortified city is still standing today, with its walls built of a mixture of stones and bones. When they had all fallen in this way to the sword, Peter alone, with a few others, escaped and re-entered Helenopolis, and the Turks who wanted to capture him set fresh ambushes for him. But when the emperor received reliable information of all this and the terrible massacre, he was very worried lest Peter should have been captured. He therefore summoned Constantine Catalan, who has already been mentioned many times in this history, and gave him a large force, which was embarked on ships of war and sent across the straits to Peter's succor. Directly the Turks saw him, they fled. Constantine, without the slightest delay, picked up Peter and his followers, who were but few, and brought them safe and sound to the emperor. Unquote. So, so far, Emperor Alexios has asked the Pope for help, and what he's received have been tens of thousands of mostly untrained people who went out into Anatolia with their entire families and got killed, and then the survivors needed to be rescued. That's not what most of us would consider help. And to add insult to injury, Peter the Hermit refuses to even accept responsibility for any of this. Anna goes on to say, quote, On the Emperor's reminding him of his original thoughtlessness and saying that it was due to his not having obeyed his, the Emperor's, advice that he had incurred such disasters. Peter, being a haughty Latin, would not admit that he himself was the cause of the trouble, but said it was the others who did not listen to him, but followed their own wills, and he denounced them as robbers and plunderers who, for that reason, were not allowed by the Savior to worship at his holy sepulchre. Unquote. Regardless of the outcome of the People's Crusade, the real First Crusade, uh, what 
is often called the Prince's Crusade, is just getting started. Future crusades would be led by kings, but Urban did not have a king to lead his crusade. King Philip of France has been excommunicated for having two wives. The Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV is openly supporting the anti-pope. William Rufus is still consolidating his father's conquests in England, and Spain isn't really a country yet, and the several small Christian states there are busy dealing with the Reconquista, uh, the conquest of the Muslim states that exist in Spain at the time. The First Crusade, then, would be led by lesser nobles. There are actually four main crusader armies under four different leaders. There is a Norman named Bohemond of Taranto. There is Robert, Duke of Normandy. There is Godfrey of Bouillon. That is in modern-day Lorraine, sort of northeast France. And there is Hugh the Great, uh, brother of the French King Philip. King Philip might be excommunicated, but there's nothing stopping his brother Hugh from going off and seeking a little glory. And for logistical reasons, these armies would travel separately to Constantinople and take separate routes. This crusade was not being led by a monk, it was being led by actual military men who understood what they were doing and that you couldn't just take the whole army across the same course. You wouldn't have enough food to feed everybody. Uh, They understood logistics a little bit better. And these four armies would arrive in Constantinople one after the other. And Anakam Nene writes of of each of these arrivals in detail, There's usually a little bit of fighting involved with these feisty Normans and French coming into Constantinople and uh, getting into trouble. But because the quote-unquote barbarians arrive uh, in four separate groups, Emperor Alexios is able to get each one of them, each one of their leaders, to eventually... Uh, swear an oath of uh, fealty, uh, so long as they're in his territory, and then supplies them with food and ferries them across to Anatolia, which is the area where they're going to be fighting. One of these four armies does not actually make it intact, though. Hugh the Great, uh, that brother of the French king, is shipwrecked. Most of his army drowns and goes to the bottom of the Mediterranean, and he comes, according to Anna's account, alone uh, to Constantinople. And here we see one of many disagreements between Anna's version of the story and the various crusader sources. Uh, Anna has Hugh behaving very arrogantly. Before he even arrives, he sends this letter to the local duke saying, you know, I'm a really important guy and I'm the brother of the French king and, you know, you better have a nice feast for me when I arrive. Uh, That sort of thing. And, you know, Anna says that 
He is rescued by this duke and given a feast even though he's alone and escorted to Constantinople with all due honor. Meanwhile, the anonymous Gesta Francorum makes it sound like he's captured by the local duke and sort of dragged to Constantinople against his way. Uh, either way, Hugh himself does eventually swear to the emperor to return the lost Byzantine land in Anatolia. And he is also ferried across to join all of his friends in the Crusader armies. And now that the Crusaders are over in Asia Minor, their first task is to recover the city of Nicaea. This city is an ancient city on the side of a lake, and it is the capital of the Sultanate of Rum. Rum being the Turkish word for Rome. This is a Seljuk Turkish state in central Anatolia, ruled by Kilij Arslan, and uh, yeah, he considers himself the Sultan of Rome. Well, Arslan, the Sultan of Rome, is away on campaign, and the city of Nicaea is lightly defended. So when the defenders see the crusaders, they sally out to meet them in the field, and they're quickly defeated. The crusaders besiege the city, but they can't get inside. Even the very small number of defenders remaining in the city are able to keep them off the walls and away from the doors. And Arslan is now able to resupply Nicaea over the lake. Uh, with boats, right? Remember we said the city is on the side of a lake? Well, the Crusaders have Nicaea surrounded on land, but that doesn't matter when they can get food and anything else they need delivered over the lake. Well, Byzantine forces ultimately arrive to assist. Alexios camps a few miles behind the Crusader forces and has his generals move some boats over land. They actually cut down some trees and uh, use them as rollers to push these boats to the city of Nicaea, and they push the boats into the lake, and now the Byzantines are blockading the city by sea, and Nicaea is well and truly surrounded. And what ends up happening is that Alexios makes a secret deal with the Turkish defenders for them to surrender the city specifically to him. The reason is he doesn't want the city of Nicaea to be sacked. This is a liberation mission, and with some justification, he's concerned that if the Crusaders... uh, get into the city first, that they're going to, you know, kill the population and steal all the valuables and burn down a bunch of buildings and stuff. He doesn't want that. This is his city. He wants it intact. So he cuts a deal. And this deal is portrayed differently in the Alexiad and the Gesta Francorum. Here's what the Alexiad says. It says, quote, 
the emperor would really have liked to march with the Latins against the impious Turks. But when he pondered over this idea and recognized that no comparison could be made between the countless hosts of the Frankish army and his own Roman army, and as from long experience he knew the Latins' fickleness, he desisted from the enterprise. Not only for this reason, but also because he realized the unstable and faithless nature of these men who were easily swayed in opposite directions like the Euripus, and were often ready, because of their covetousness, to sell their wives and children for a penny piece. For these reasons, the emperor held back from the enterprise at that time. Unquote. On the other hand, here's what the guest of Francorum says, quote, the Turks, moreover, seeing that they could have no further aid from their armies, sent a message to the emperor that they would willingly surrender the city if he would permit them to go away entirely with their wives and children and all their substance. Then the emperor, full of vain and evil thinking, ordered them to depart unpunished, without any fear, and to be brought to him at Constantinople with great assurance of safety. These he cared for zealously, so that he had them prepared against any damage or hindrance from the Franks. We were engaged in that siege for seven weeks and three days. Many of our men there received martyrdom and, glad and rejoicing, gave back their happy souls to God. Many of the very poor died of hunger for the name of Christ, and these bore triumphantly to heaven their robes of martyrdom, crying with one voice, Avenge, Lord, our blood which has been shed for thee who are blessed and praiseworthy forever and ever. Amen. In the meanwhile, after the city had been surrendered and the Turks had been conducted to Constantinople, the emperor, more and more rejoiced because the city had been surrendered to his power, ordered the greatest alms to be distributed to our poor. Unquote. And for the time being, Alexios's generosity buys him the grudging allegiance not just of the crusaders but of many of the surrendering turks who are allowed to remain in the city and in some cases do from nicaea the crusaders advance south towards the city of antioch and they march divided into two groups uh, one group consists of normans and the other group consists of the French. And the Normans are marching out ahead with the French behind, and Alexios and his Byzantine army are far to the rear. Well, the Norman army in the lead is ambushed by a force of cavalry archers under Arslan. And this army deploys in a defensive formation, but they cannot counterattack against the Turks. The guest of Frank Corum says, quote, By the time all this had been done, the Turks had already surrounded us on all sides. They attacked us, slashing, hurling, and shooting arrows far and wide, in a manner strange to behold. Although we could scarcely hold them back or even bear up under the weight of such a host, nevertheless, we all managed to hold our ranks. Our women were a great blessing to us that day for they carried drinking water to our fighting men and comforted the fighters and defenders. Unquote. And before the Norman defensive positions can be overrun, 
the French column arrives and launches a counterattack against Arslan's Turks. And this alone is not enough to drive them off, but what does the trick is a small force of Frenchmen uh, led by the Bishop of Lepuy. Yes, you have clergymen going off a-fighting in the Crusades here, and this force of Frenchmen under the bishop sneak around behind the Turks through a pass in the mountains, and they attack from the rear. And upon being attacked from the rear, as well as the front, the Turkish army flees. And this removes any significant obstacle between the Crusaders and the city of Antioch. And they lay siege to the city for eight months, from October of 1097 to June of 1098. And this is a close-run siege. Uh, The garrison of Antioch sends for help, but the Turkish response is disorganized. Two separate relief forces arrive in December and February. And if those two forces were combined, they probably would have driven the Crusaders off. But because they arrived separately, uh, each one is repelled uh, by the besieging Crusaders, and the city of Antioch is not relieved. Now, the Crusaders have a challenge of their own, and that is food. Simply put, there is not enough of it in the area around Antioch, especially over the winter, uh, to feed all of these people. And uh, food has to be brought into the area on donkeys. And it is so expensive that many of the foot soldiers and non-combatants simply can't afford it, and at least a few thousand starve during the winter. And by spring, the situation is so bad that some of the crusaders are deserting and just going back home to Europe. And one of them, a knight named Stephen of Blois, uh, he encounters Alexios' army on his way back to Europe. And he tells Alexios that the siege is lost. And because of this, rather than going to join the crusading armies, Alexios holds his army back. Meanwhile, one of the crusader leaders, a Viking named Bohemond, he has conspired with an Armenian guard commander to seize part of Antioch's wall, basically this Armenian commander. His sympathies are more with the crusaders than with the Seljuk Turks, and uh, he tells Bohemond, yeah, any time, just let me know when, and... uh, We'll make sure your ladders can get your guys right into these three towers and you'll have control of part of the wall. Well, Bohemond is a clever fellow, and he proposes a contest to the other crusading leaders. He says that whoever can convince a defender to hand over part of the wall should get to be ruler of Antioch after the siege, and the other leaders agree to this. After all, fighting hasn't done much good, so why not give talking a chance? And not surprisingly, uh, 
upon request, this Armenian guard commander hands over control of part of the wall to Bohemond, and most of the Turkish garrison flees. But some defenders do remain in the citadel, in the keep in the center of the city. So Bohemond takes his men, his group of crusaders, and they besiege that citadel inside the city. They actually build a wall to separate the citadel from the rest of the city and make it easier to besiege. But at the same time, the French troops have to man the ramparts of the main city because an army of Turks under a general named Kerboga are coming to retake Antioch. At this point now, there are about 20,000 very hungry defenders about to face off against nearly 40,000 attackers. And while they are under siege in Antioch in July of 1098, a soldier named Peter Bartholomew claims to have seen a vision of the Holy Lance Longinus. In the Christian tradition, this is the lance that pierced the side of Christ at the crucifixion. And in his visions, Peter claims that St. Andrew tells him that whoever carries the spear cannot be defeated in battle. And he shows Peter where to dig up the spear. And at least according to the Gesta Francorum, a lance is indeed found buried exactly where it was in the vision. Whether you believe this or not, the discovery of the lance would boost the morale of the crusaders during this time. This particular soldier, Peter Bartholomew, would claim to have further visions, and a year later, in an attempt to prove that he was indeed telling the truth, he would undergo an ordeal by fire, that is, uh, walking across a series of red-hot plowshares, and he would be severely injured and die of his injuries, but for the time being, the Holy Lance would be an important symbol for the Crusaders. A few days later, the Turkish army is imminently going to assault the city. And Peter the Hermit, uh, the fellow who kicked off the People's Crusade, well, he's followed the army of the First Crusaders this far, and he himself gives a rousing speech to the defenders. And uh, when the Turks attack the city of Antioch across a causeway, the French, inspired by Peter the Hermit's words, launch a furious counterattack, and their attack is so violent that the Turkish vanguard, the troops in the lead, uh, they flee, and they flee right into the rest of the Turkish army, which sets off a domino effect, and uh, the entire army sort of flees and disintegrates, and you know, oddly enough, there are actually very few casualties because they just ran away. And meanwhile, uh, Bohemond, 
has been able to take over the citadel in the center of the city, and now he is de facto Prince of Antioch, and Antioch becomes the first crusader state, a nation founded by these crusading warriors. But this act is a betrayal of the oath that Bohemond and the other crusaders had taken to the Byzantine emperor Alexios. They were supposed to return his land, and instead, Antioch, the city that was Byzantine territory by right, became Bohemond's new principality. And Bohemond justifies it because Alexios, misled as to the status of the battle, had withheld his troops, right? Remember, he had held them back. Meanwhile, around the same time, another crusader, a man named Baldwin of Bouillon, uh, he founds Edessa. That's another crusader state sort of northeast of Antioch. And at this point, the crusaders in Antioch spend about six months squabbling and infighting among themselves, until finally everyone agrees that uh, there's nothing they could do, uh, whatever they think about it, Bohemond is the prince of Antioch, and they acknowledge that legally. And Bohemond and his men decide to stay in Antioch. Well, the remaining crusader army continues south at this point to Jerusalem. They are led by Godfrey of Bouillon, that is, Baldwin's brother. This army now numbers roughly 1,200 knights and 10,000 infantry. It is a significantly smaller force than the great army that had been besieging Nicaea just a couple of years earlier. And when they left Antioch in January of 1099, they would leave without any sort of help. See, not only had the Crusaders uh, betrayed Emperor Alexios, but Jerusalem was not part of his realm. This last leg of the journey, this military pilgrimage, well, that was not his fight. And in fact, Jerusalem had actually been taken from the Seljuk Turks the previous year by none other than the Byzantine-allied Fatimid dynasty. So, Alexios was absolutely not going to help the Crusaders in this final act. Uh, But Godfrey of Bouillon's army is able to get some help. Uh, They are supplied by a fleet from the Italian city-state of Pisa, and this fleet uh, follows along the Mediterranean coast, alongside the army delivering supplies. And Jerusalem's Fatimid governor knows that the Crusader army is coming, and he is fairly well prepared, right? Remember, this is, after all, a border area to begin with, where facing military threats is not uncommon. And this governor prepares his 20,000 defenders for battle, and is part of the preparations, he expels all Christians from the city. He figures they may collude with the Crusader army. 
don't want another situation like you had with that Armenian guard in Antioch. And uh, in addition, he gets Jerusalem's Jewish community to fight alongside the Muslim defenders. Right? The stories of earlier crusader atrocities against Jews lead the Jews of Jerusalem to think that it's really in their best interest to fight uh, with the Muslims this time around. And finally, the governor of Jerusalem poisons all the wells outside of the city. So when Godfrey's army arrives in June of 1099, their supply situation is actually worse than Jerusalem's defenders. Right? The defenders, at least they've got water. And worse, Godfrey does not have enough men to encircle Jerusalem. Right? He's got this much smaller army to deal with. He can't effectively stop supplies from getting in and out of the city and starve them out. He's going to have to take the city by storm. Godfrey's army launches their first assault on June 12th. It's a frontal assault against the walls, most likely just more to see what kind of defenses they're dealing with than any sort of serious attack. Uh, and they are indeed pushed back, but they learn a little bit about the defenses, and Godfrey sends out for some supplies to build siege engines. Right? Remember, he's got this helpful fleet from Pisa, he says, hey, can you guys go get us some wood? Because there's not a lot of wood around Jerusalem. And uh, five days later, some ships come back with wood. And uh, over the course of the next month, so going into the middle of July, uh, a set of siege engines are built. Uh, there are a couple of trebuchets, which are not actually catapults. They're a siege engine uh, with a uh, boom and a counterweight on one end that is specifically designed for taking down walls and structures. Uh, and more decisively, the Crusaders are able to build a couple of siege towers, uh, which are assembled outside of the city's south and eastern walls. And the idea of a siege tower is you have sort of an armored shelter that's uh, you know a vertical structure with a, a ladder inside, usually uh, some platforms on the way up, and uh, a besieger can push the tower up to the wall and basically climb up to the top and just hop onto the wall. And part of the reason uh, this construction takes so long is because there is a little bit of a construction battle going on between the Crusaders and the Defenders, because the Defenders see the siege towers being built, and they round up some stone in the city and try and build the wall up a little bit higher, so the Crusaders have to build the towers higher. And eventually, on the night of July 13th, 1099, everything is ready for the attack, and the Crusaders launch another assault but they aren't able to get the siege towers all the way up to the walls. In one position, there is a ditch in the way uh, that then has to be filled in with rocks in order for the tower to proceed. I don't really have a clear source of information on why the other siege tower was not able to get all the way up to the wall on that day, but uh, regardless, the 
Crusaders under Godfrey are able to attack again on the night of the 15th of July. And this time, one of the siege towers manages to reach the wall. And the gangplank on top of the tower slams down on the wall, creating a bridge. And according to the Gesta Francorum, quote, One of our knights, named Lethold, clambered up the wall of the city, and no sooner had he ascended than the defenders fled from the walls and through the city. Our men followed, killing and slaying even to the Temple of Solomon, where the slaughter was so great that our men waded in blood up to their ankles. Unquote. Now, not all of the crusaders were engaging in wholesale slaughter. Some were trying to defend uh, the civilians in the city. There was a Sicilian Norman named Tancred. Uh, he tries to protect some Muslims at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, but he cannot restrain his men. The Gesta Francorum continues, quote, The battle raged throughout the day so that the temple was covered with their blood. When the pagans had been overcome, our men seized great numbers, both men and women, either killing them or keeping them captive as they wished. On the roof of the temple, a great number of pagans of both sexes had assembled, and these were taken under the protection of Tancred and Gaston of Beert. Afterward, the army scattered throughout the city and took possession of the gold and silver, the horses and mules, and the houses filled with goods of all kinds. Rejoicing and weeping for joy, our people came to the sepulchre of Jesus our Savior to worship and pay their debt. That means uh, actually praying at the sepulchre, right? Completing the pilgrimage. At dawn, our men cautiously went up to the roof of the temple and attacked the Saracen men and women, beheading them with naked swords. Some of the Saracens, however, leapt from the temple roof. Tancred, seeing this, was greatly angered. Unquote. And it is not just Jerusalem's Muslim population that experiences the Crusader atrocities. The city's Jews are also slaughtered. Jerusalem's largest synagogue is burnt to the ground, and according to some of the Muslim sources, there are Jews praying inside as it is burnt to the ground. Well, after the battle and the sack of Jerusalem, Godfrey of Bullion is named Defender of the Holy Sepulchre. This is a title he insists on taking rather than taking the title of king. He says that he will not wear a crown of gold in the city where Christ wore a crown of thorns. The city's new Latin bishop, a man named Arnulf Malicorn, he has the local Eastern Orthodox clergy tortured to reveal the location of Jerusalem's most sacred relic, the true cross on which Christ was crucified. They eventually reveal its location. It is, in fact, a 
chunk of wood, purportedly from the True Cross, uh, inside a gold cross-shaped housing. Uh, and Arnulf presents this to Godfrey, and he presents it just in time for the True Cross to become a symbol of the Crusades. See, there is one last battle remaining in the First Crusade. A Muslim relief army is on the way with 50,000 men against Godfrey's roughly 11,000. But these are not Turks. These are Fatimid Egyptians. They don't fight in this horse archer style like the Turks do. They fight in the fanatical, old-school, sort of Arab-Muslim way that we saw in the, uh, in the Islamic caliphates, where they are a cavalry-heavy force, and they charge the enemy en masse in a frontal assault, terrify their opponents who start fleeing, and then they cut them down as they run. It's usually pretty effective. But the Crusader army is heavily armored. Many of these men are knights. Even those who aren't are professional, disciplined infantry, and they don't break and run. These men had served at Antioch. These men had been both besiegers and besieged at Nicaea. They had survived terrible thirst to win the city of Jerusalem. And they stood against the Fatimid charge and turned them back. And Godfrey, holding the true cross, led his men forward with a cry of Deus Volt, and the Fatimid army scattered. And this ended, at least for now, any serious threat to the kingdom of Jerusalem. Godfrey himself would not live to enjoy his victories for very long. Within a year, he would die, leaving the kingdom of Jerusalem to his brother Baldwin, who would now be not only the Count of Edessa, but the defender of the Holy Sepulchre. After the First Crusade, the Eastern and Western Christian churches would not ultimately be united. This was in part due to ongoing theological disputes and in part due to deep cultural resentments. Italian merchants from Venice, Pisa, and Genoa would eventually set up their own neighborhoods in trade-dependent Constantinople, and this would lead to cultural clashes and even riots in the city, and Greek disgust with quote-unquote barbarian Latin culture helped to perpetuate this split and make it permanent. So it ultimately culminate in the Fourth Crusade and the sack of Constantinople. But that's a story for another day. Now, national and cultural differences would ultimately doom the Crusader states as well. The European feudal system 
that was imposed by the new crusader leaders was deeply unpopular with the locals, even most of the Christian locals. This lack of popular support made it very hard for the crusader states to defend themselves. And Not only that, but once the pilgrimage to Jerusalem was done, most of the crusaders went home leaving only a few thousand to defend the new kingdoms in the Holy Land. The crusader states in the Middle East would all be gone within a few generations, right? No one is out there trying to reestablish the kingdom of Jerusalem or the county of Edessa. But their legacy remains. In the year 1119, just... Twenty years after the conquest of Jerusalem, the Knights Templar would be founded. Supposedly, they would be founded at the Temple of Solomon. The Knights Hospitaller would be founded a few years later. And Christian Crusader states became targets for Muslim reconquest, which would fuel further Crusades. This is the era that gives us Saladin and other nearly mythical figures. Beyond all that, the extension of European trade to the Middle East would reintroduce goods like silk, which had been nearly non-existent in Europe since the Muslim conquests in the 800s. This would awaken a hunger in Europeans for trade. And with the disappearance of the Crusader states, that hunger would go on. It would ultimately lead the Spanish to sail west in search of the Indies. Well, we all know what they found there, don't we? And that among many other reasons, is why it's relevant. Hello again. It's Dan, and I'm here to ask for your help. See, we're trying to promote this show and get the word out to as many people as possible, so if you have a minute, please share on your favorite social media. Send a link to the episode or even to our website at dantollerpodcast.com. That's dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast.com. If this is your first time listening to the show, Don't miss a future episode. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, formerly iTunes, Google, Spotify, or just about any other service you want to listen to a podcast on. You can find an RSS link as well as a link to all these other services, again, at dantollerpodcast.com. If you want news on the latest episodes or anything that is upcoming in the world of relevant history... You can find us at Dan Toller Podcast on Twitter or at Dan Toller on Facebook. 
Finally, if you've got a few dollars and you'd like to provide some financial support to the show, you can find us at patreon.com slash Podcast. Alternatively, you can also support the show at subscribestar.com. You can find us there at Relevant History. And for everything else, including links to interviews and my blog, which may or may not ever get updated, once again, Dan Toller Podcast, Dan T-O-L-E-R Podcast.com. Thanks for listening.